0: Today on Something You Should Know, there are times when you're better off putting your cell phone away and out of sight because it affects how people judge you. Then did you know there is a powerful chemical in your brain that makes you always want more and never be satisfied with what you get?
1: That's the basis for buyer's remorse. You know, we might look forward to purchasing something for weeks, even months. Our imagination goes wild with how it's going to change our life and as soon as we get it, We say, oh my God, why did I spend this much money? Also,
0: the best way to reheat pizza and the fascinating world of spices and understanding how to use them better.
2: I think this is the reason why many of us are quite scared about cooking with spices is because they actually taste awful. You bite into, let's say, a peppercorn and it tastes repulsive, but in very small amounts, they actually are really pleasant, really flavorful.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know, with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. Got a really interesting program today. Well, I like to think they're all interesting, but I love it when I just, I hear some out of the blue fascinating stuff that I've never heard before, and you will hear that today in the first interview. But first up today, cell phones are everywhere. I mean, it, it, kids as young as 8 and 9 years old are walking around staring at their phones. But the next time you have an important date or an important meeting, hide your phone. A study found that those people with no phone in sight were perceived as more likable, sincere, and trustworthy. And this held true in both personal and professional settings. If you have no intention of using your phone, it should be off and out of sight. Because when people see you with your phone, it suggests that there may be an interruption of the conversation at any moment, and that person is not your top priority. And that is something you should know. Why is it that we always, or most of the time, want more? We want more money, more success, more love, more novelty, a bigger house, a nicer car. More, more, more. We don't want less. We want more. And on top of that, when we get the more that we say we want, it's usually not enough. Then we want even more than that. So why is that? What drives us to always want more? Here to explain why we are this way and why it's so fascinating is Dr. Daniel Lieberman. He's an M.D. and professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University, and he's author of a book called The More Molecule, How a Single Chemical in Your Brain Drives Love, Sex, and Creativity and Will Determine the Fate of the Human Race. Hi, doctor. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Mike.
0: Sure. So, first of all, what is this more molecule? What is this chemical that you're talking about?
1: So, it's a chemical called a neurotransmitter. So the brain uses uh, different neurotransmitters for different functions. Some of them control our mood, some of them control our energy. What dopamine, the molecule of more, does is it orients us to the future. It evolved in order to help us to maximize future resources, i.e. keep us alive, keep us reproducing. And so it always makes us think about what's next and it can take our mind off of what we're doing now, the good things we have in our life now, and really focus us on what we don't have and the things we want or need.
0: So when people say, just be grateful for what you have, that's really contrary to human nature because we always want more.
1: Exactly. Now, there are chemicals in our brain that do allow us to be grateful for what we have. In the book, we call them the here-and-now neurotransmitters, but they're not as powerful as dopamine is. In fact, they're pretty weak, and modern society tends to shift us away from those neurotransmitters and really makes us a lot more dopamine-focused.
0: So how does it work? How does a chemical in the brain make me want a bigger house, or uh, more money, or uh, how, how does it work?
1: Well, there are a number of different pathways that dopamine takes through the brain. And I like to think of them like pathways that fuel will take through a rocket ship. You can have the main thrusters that move you forward. You can have side thrusters that steer, retro rockets to slow you down. The fuel's doing different things, but it's all to get the rocket to the destination. And dopamine's the same way. It can travel through different pathways in the brain. Seemingly in very different ways, but the outcome is the same, and that's maximizing future resources. So, for example, we've got what we call the desire pathway. That makes you want things, and it also gives you the energy, motivation, and perseverance to go after the things that you want. The problem with the desire pathway, though, is that it's pretty indiscriminate. If it wants something, it just wants it, whether or not it's really going to be good for our long-term future. The desire pathway has a very short-term orientation, such as, I want an ice cream cone right now then there's the control pathway, that involves the frontal lobes, which are the most sophisticated parts of the brain for processing and the most recent to develop from an evolutionary point of view. And we call that the control circuit. That allows us to look a little bit farther into the future than the desire circuit does. It allows us to weigh options, it allows us to use abstract concepts such as language and mathematics. And it's really very, very powerful in terms of being able to help us to dominate our environment the way human beings have dominated the planet.
0: So when dopamine is telling you you want more and you want that ice cream cone right now, but you don't want any ice cream cone right now. If you got a broccoli flavored ice cream cone (laughs) handed to you, you'd probably pass. So what's going on there that, yes, you want more, but not that more?
1: Right. So, you know, dopamine is part of the brain, and the brain is the most complex, most individualized organ in the body. So we can talk generally about what these circuits do, but it's important to remember that they are different in every single individual, probably, who's ever existed on this planet. So what I want more and what you want more are going to be different, and they will be more or less specific depending on the situation. So, for example, if I'm starving, I think I'll take that broccoli-flavored ice cream. So it's complicated. It depends on one's genetics. It depends on one's environment. It depends on one's past. It depends on a whole lot of different things.
0: So what about the people that don't seem to want more? I think we tend to call them lazy. They, they don't, nothing really seems to motivate them. They don't care. They're going to live in mom's basement for the rest of their life. W- w- what happened to them?
1: You know, there are people who have particularly strong dopamine systems. We call them dopaminergic personalities, and they, uh, they can have a number of different dopaminergic personalities. And then you have the, the non-dopaminergic type, um, we sort of jokingly refer to them as the pot-smoking basement dwellers. And so they can come across uh, in a very negative way. Uh, They can be lazy. They can be unmotivated. They can always be depending on other people to support them. But there's a positive side as well. Um, They can also be the serene monk who lives up in the mountains and does little but meditate and is enormously happy and satisfied with the very bare necessities of life. So there is a positive and negative side to, uh, to both of these things, to the very dopaminergic person and to the person who is very low in dopamine activity.
0: Is dopaminergic a real word or did did, did you just make that up?
1: <laughs> I did not. That's actually a real world word from the scientific literature. Wow, I've never it's heard that,
0: I've never heard that word before and I would not even attempt to spell it. So, knowing this, so what? I mean, is this just a well, isn't this interesting or knowing this we can do something with it?
1: I think it's important to know about, you know, a lot of people who have read the book have said that it really changes the way they view their life and the world as they go through the day we shift between dopamine activities and non-dopamine activities. And it's very helpful to be aware of which one we're doing so we can try to fully be in that mode. So, for example, if you're at work and you've got to produce something, you're in dopamine mode and you want to be focusing on what are my needs for the future and how do I get there. By contrast, when you come home and you spend time with loved ones it's important to do your best to get out of dopamine mode to come down into here and now mode and really try to be present with them. And it's pretty hard to do. It's pretty hard to do. I mean, you think how often are you in conversation with someone you care about very deeply and you're not even listening to them while they're talking, your mind is elsewhere, probably thinking about something you need to do in the future. And so it's good to think about what mode am I in, what mode should I be in, and what can I do to more fully experience this mode?
0: If dopamine is the thing that makes you want more and then be bored with it after you've gotten it, is there something in the awareness of that that maybe helps you appreciate that more, or that's just, that's just the way we work?
1: Yes, it's a very, very funny phenomenon, the way when we get something, it instantly changes from before. And and the reason is that the way the brain is wired, dopamine is designed only for processing things that are in the future. And so if I want a new pair of shoes, and I'm imagining how amazing I'm going to look in these shoes, and how perhaps it's going to change my life that's all well and good as long as I don't have the shoes because that keeps the shoes in the future. As soon as the shoes become mine, they're now in the present and dopamine utterly shuts down because it's not designed for processing things in the present. And that immediate loss of dopamine activity can come as quite a crash. And that's the basis for buyer's remorse. You know, we might look forward to purchasing something for weeks, even months. Our imagination goes wild with how it's going to change our life. And as soon as we get it, we say, oh my God, why did I spend this much money? It it happens to people with relationships too a lot of times there are people who will just jump from one relationship to another. And when the relationship is new, when you have this idealized object of desire, it creates an enormous amount of excitement and enthusiasm. But once that object of desire becomes a real human being, the future-focused dopamine shuts down, and maybe these kinds of people don't have particularly strong here-and-now chemicals in their brain and all of a sudden they've completely lost interest in this person and they think it's time to go on to the next one
0: i want to ask you how gambling fits into this and how dopamine affects people when they gamble but first already in the first few episodes of 2019 we've talked about resolutions and goals because a new year brings new beginnings And one of the things I bet you've thought about is new software for your business. A new year is the best time to make a change to better software, especially if the old software is causing problems. And now you can find exactly the right software for your business using Capterra.com. Capterra is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solutions for your business. They've got over 700,000 reviews of products from real software users. You could search more than 700 specific categories of software, everything from project management, email marketing, to yoga studio management. Every month, millions of people use Capterra because there's simply no better way to find software for your business visit captera.com/something for free today to find the right tools to make 2019 the year for your business captera.com/something captera that's c a p t e r r a.com/something and that link is also in the show notes you know distracted driving is a serious problem on our roadways leading to the deaths of thousands of people and injuries in the hundreds of thousands each year. When you take your eyes and your focus off the road, even for a second, it can be deadly. Not just for you, but for other drivers, as well as pedestrians and bicyclists. Sadly, many Americans use their cell phones while driving. Whether it's texting, checking emails, scrolling media feeds, or any other form of distraction, drivers are putting themselves and others around them at great risk. It's important to know that 48 states ban texting and driving. Also, 21 states prohibit all drivers from using cell phones while driving. Distracted drivers are not only putting people at risk, they're also breaking the law. Look, it's dangerous to use your cell phone behind the wheel. That's why law enforcement officers write tickets and enforce hands-free and anti-texting and driving laws. When you're driving, Put down your phone, keep your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road, and your mind on the task of driving. Remember, you drive, you text, you pay. Brought to you by NHTSA.
1: Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Binge on 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, and everything from hit movies to the latest news, comedy, live sports, and more. Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, or Fire TV and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in.
2: Watch free.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Daniel Lieberman. He's author of the book The More Molecule, How a Single Chemical in Your Brain drives love, sex, and creativity, and will determine the fate of the human race. I was thinking as you were describing how dopamine works about Christmas morning, how kids, after they've been anticipating Christmas for so long and they open the presents and then it's... You know, is that it? I mean, <laughs> there's nothing more? It's that thing, right?
1: Exactly. And and what do they do? They play with the boxes. Because <laughs> the boxes trigger imagination, which is dopaminergic. And um, that's a lot more exciting than possessing what is often just a lump of plastic. So so it's good to pay attention when this happens to you. It, it's good to experience the feeling of dopamine shutting down when we get something we've been anticipating because that might give us a... a perspective, a more realistic perspective on what we want. And we may say, you know what, it feels great to anticipate this big purchase, but I know it's not going to feel that great when I get it, so maybe it's not necessary for me to actually purchase it. You may have heard of the saying, it's better to travel hopefully than to arrive, and that's all about dopamine. And before we make decisions, we need to think about what's it going to feel like when we arrive.
0: What about something like gambling, which I think is probably, uh, dopamine is at at the heart of that, I would imagine. And I, like many people, like money, but I have no interest in gambling. Gambling does nothing for me, and I don't do it, but other people do it. Other people go nuts and get in a lot of trouble. So what's What do I have or not have that they have?
1: So you're absolutely right. Gambling does stimulate dopamine in a way that's not so different from the way drugs of abuse stimulate them. But... It comes down, again, to just the individual variations in people's brains. I'm like you. I I, I, I think I've spent a total of $5 gambling uh, on two or three trips to Las Vegas. It it just does absolutely nothing for me. And I've got a friend who loves it. and, And I said to him one day, look you're not stupid. You know what odds are. You can do simple math. You know that there's no way you can win in the long term. Why do you give the casinos your money? And he said, well, it's the same as somebody who's going to spend $1,000 on a ski trip. I know I'm going to lose the money, but boy, is it fun while it's happening. So I I think it's the same as lots of things. Some people enjoy skiing. Some people enjoy gambling money in Las Vegas. And it really comes down to individual differences in genes and brain circuits. You
0: say this relates to politics, liberals and conservatives. So talk about that. Explain that.
1: Overall, liberal political philosophy is more oriented on the future. We see that in the name that liberals often give to themselves, which is progressives. They're very interested in making the world a better place, and some of them think that they can make the world a perfect place through the right combination of policy, education, and technological developments. So people who have very strong dopamine systems and um, these tend to be people who are very good at working with abstract concepts, people like mathematicians, artists, movie stars, writers, uh, journalists. They tend to have more of a progressive approach to politics. Conservatives, on the other hand, have more of a here-and-now approach, and once again, that's right in the meaning of the word. They don't want things to change. They want to appreciate the best that we have inherited from our forebears. These are people who tend often to have jobs that are less focused on abstract concepts and maybe more focused on physical reality. Um, jobs that in, involve more physical activity. So they tend to be a little bit less dopaminergic, a little bit more focused on the here and now. And this accounts for a lot of the stereotypes about the, um, the people on both sides of the equation. So for example, liberals Uh, You know, there's a saying, a hundred liberals walking down the street is probably a protest. A hundred conservatives is probably a parade. Liberals tend to be dissatisfied. They always want things to change. Conservatives, on the other hand, think that things are pretty much okay just the way they are. And population polls tend to bear this out. In general, conservatives are happier and more satisfied than liberal, liberals are.
0: Well, that's interesting because if what you say is true, liberals want change because the goal is change. So if they get the change, it, it doesn't solve anything, it doesn't satisfy anything, they're just going to want more change.
1: It, it, it would never end. No, there's no finish line. That's right, change itself is the goal for the very dopaminergic. Here's the way I think about it. Um, When you drive a car, you've got a gas pedal and a brake. And both of them are equally important. You need the gas pedal to get somewhere. You need the brake to control um, and and no one to stop when you get there. And I think that liberals and conservatives are like that. The liberals are the gas. The conservatives are the brakes. And the system, I think, is going to work very, very well when the two are cooperating. Uh, when the two are exchanging rational arguments and really figuring out what's going to be the best for everyone.
0: So we've been talking about how dopamine makes you more inclined to want more. You want more of whatever it is you want. But how much more inclined? In other words, where is free will here? How much of this is predetermined? And when does somebody get to say, if ever well, you know, it wasn't me that made that decision, it was my dopamine, this this is just who I am, I must have
1: this? You know, that's an extremely difficult question, and and it's one that psychiatrists, especially psychiatrists that have to interact with criminals, they struggle with that all the time. Um, It's sad versus bad. Is this person a sick individual, or is this person a morally flawed individual? We don't... We don't have the answer because really any behavior at all can be understood on a neurological basis Um, and there is no neurological basis for free will. That is a philosophical concept that science has not made any progress whatsoever in understanding. Now I, I think it's good to understand that to some degree nobody has full control over their mind which I think can come across as a foreign concept we understand that we don't have full control over our body but we think we ought to be able to determine our thoughts but we can't Um, we have limited ability to do that and I think that that what that allows us to do is to see what's going on and see what we need to do to shape things often it involves increase advanced planning and if I could just give an example If somebody who's having a problem with alcohol goes to a party and they are offered a drink they will often be overwhelmed by craving and take that drink and I think legitimately say at a later date I couldn't control myself on the other hand if they know that that lack of control is going to occur in advance what they can do is say, I'm not going to go to this party. Or they can say, I'm going to take a sober buddy with me who, if they see someone offering me a drink, is going to step in. So I think that, I think that both things are true. There are times when we don't have control over our brain but there are things we can do to maximize that control and really take full responsibility for our lives.
0: Yeah. Well, and and when you say that we don't control our thoughts, well, we can control some of it. I mean, I can decide to think about an elephant right now, and guess what I'm thinking about? I mean, I have some control over it, but not as much control, therefore, as maybe I think I do because of the example you just gave of, you know, uh, someone who has trouble with alcohol is going to have a hard time stopping, and those are thoughts they cannot control.
1: Right, and I think an example we can all relate to is that next time you're talking to a friend or family member, try and pay 100% attention to what they're saying, and I think you'll find it's harder than you think it is, that your mind wanders very quickly and you have to constantly bring it back into the present moment.
0: But people think of that as, as a flaw, not because something else is controlling their thoughts, it's just that they're not doing a very good job at staying focused.
1: I don't think that's true. I think that um, that we've developed these uh, brain habits through evolution and experience um, we can change them. We, we can make it easier to live in the present, easier to pay attention to other people. But through habit, we do lose a little bit of that control.
0: Well, you hear about dopamine a lot. I mean, it comes up a lot in this program, uh, but people don't typically call it the more molecule.
1: People tend to think of dopamine as the pleasure molecule. It's what happens when you use drug, eat drugs, eat food, have sex. That's only half the story a much more important thing is that it takes us out of the present moment, out of physical reality, and off into the nebulous, abstract world of possibility and future.
0: Well, it is interesting, and I've never heard dopamine explained this way, so I appreciate that. My guest has been Dr. Daniel Lieberman, M.D. and professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University, and he's author of the book, The More Molecule, How a Single Chemical in Your Brain Drives Love, Sex, and Creativity, and Will Determine the Fate of the Human Race. There's a link to his book in the show notes for this episode. Thank you, Doctor.
1: All right, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Do you own or rent your home?
0: Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com to get a quote and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. Everybody loves game shows. Everybody has a podcast. I've got both. Hi, hey everybody, I'm Kyle Brandt, and my new show, 10 Questions, is a game
2: show talk show. Athletes, movie stars, everybody will come on, not just to talk, they come on this show to compete. 10 questions that, whether they know it or not,
0: are somehow inspired by a moment in their life or their career. 10 questions, 10 points, so much fun. Head over to Spotify and please follow 10 Questions with Kyle Brandt. <laughs> A world without spices would be very dull and boring. Almost any food, it seems, can be made to taste a little better if you add the right amount of this or the right amount of that spice. And humans have known this for thousands and thousands of years. There's evidence of spices being used in ancient civilizations as a way to flavor food and, just as importantly, to mask unpleasant flavors. There are tales in history when spices were more valuable than gold, and and wars have been fought over spices. And spices have been used as medicine for thousands and thousands of years. Today, as before, we use spices and herbs to flavor our food. But there is a lot about spices in your food you may not know. Stuart Faramond is a food science writer and the author of a beautiful new book called Spice. Welcome, Stuart. Hey Mike, um, great to speak with you. So explain if you can, because this has always intrigued me how somehow, somewhere, a long time ago, someone thought, hey, if we put this spice on this food, it will help it taste better, when in fact, almost every spice, when you taste it by itself, on its own, it tastes terrible. So how did this, how did this come together?
2: it's bizarre it's really strange because this is this is the thing about spices and i think this is the reason why many of us are quite scared about cooking with spices is because they actually taste awful um you you bite into let's say a peppercorn and it tastes repulsive um but in very small amounts these highly potent flavor capsules if you like um in in small amounts uh they actually are really pleasant really flavorful who first discovered this that's a really good question spices have historically had um mystical values and med- medicinal values uh they've been using medicines and all sorts of things like that so uh, and putting that into cooking i guess that was kind of a natural progression of um, adding it into your diet so that you get the benefits from these from these spices wasn't part of the the whole
0: reason of using spices was to make food that might otherwise taste pretty lousy
2: and try to make it taste better uh, <laughs> yes that's that's as the story goes say your meat doesn't keep very well in hot climates uh, and would go off and taste horrible and rotten by heavily spicing it you could mask lots of horrible flavors and so just to define our terms what is the difference
0: between a spice and and an herb, or as you say in the UK, herb. Uh, we don't <laughs> we don't pronounce the H. Well, what's the difference between spices
2: and herbs? Spices are from any part of the plant other than the leaf. Uh, the leaf is the herb. Uh, every other part of the plant is the spice, and it matters because spices are generally so potent uh, that we dry them. And because they're dried, we've kind of got to reawaken the flavors. We've got to get it out of that spice. So if you can imagine, let's just say a peppercorn, um, the the flavor in that peppercorn are kept in tiny little droplets of oil that are inside the substance of that peppercorn. And you're only going to get that out by bruising bashing cooking that peppercorn and then it'll all be spilled out into into your cooking and and the flavors will spread throughout whereas an herb you would generally for best results cook with an herb fresh and so they need to be added um treated with care when you're cooking with them so add them towards the end of cooking they um they they release their flavor much more quickly they're much more fragile uh, and so they are the, the, the main distinguishing features of a spice and an herb. Is salt a spice? <laughs> no, salt is a seasoning. Uh, salt is a mineral. So it's it's not a spice. It is the cheapest and most effective flavor enhancer that we have on earth because it's something that our body craves. In nature, salt is very hard to come by. And so we have this inbuilt evolutionary desire to crave anything that is salty. So adding salt to any kind of food enhances all the flavors. It makes our taste buds uh, more sensitive to sweet. It it makes the aroma compounds that um, flood our nose. Our body becomes much more sensitive and, and all flavors are intensified by salt. So salt is an essential part of many cooking cuisines. Uh, But in its own right, it is not actually a spice. So
0: from your experience and from watching people and talking to people, what are some of the mistakes people make when they use spices or herbs or seasonings or whatever
2: you want to, however you want to attack this? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What's the top mistakes? Not roasting them beforehand. Uh, that is probably the biggest mistake that people make you just get your jar of spice out of the cupboard and you throw it into your cooking midway through Um, and if you don't roast them beforehand you're missing out on on so much of the flavor it's like having a steak and not searing it before you eat it you're losing all the rich flavors on the outside because when you roast a spice or you fry it off at the beginning of your cooking that's a really important thing to do roasting or frying off at the beginning of cooking, there is a fantastic flavour reaction that's going on on the outside called the Maillard reaction. Uh, Exactly the same reaction that happens when you toast bread or when you sear your steak, that brown um crust that you get on the outside that's the same thing that's happening in spices but the unique flavor compounds and substances that are in the spice give it a nutty rich unique aroma that is unique to that individual spice and if you don't do that you're missing out on so much of the flavor so that is the number one mistake that people make is not to fry or roast your spices beforehand even if you've got powder you can fry it off in some oil briefly at the beginning of cooking and the other mistake is to just throw it into your, your steaming pot of stew or whatever and hope for the best because all those gorgeous flavour molecules, they dissolve really well in oil but really terribly in water so you need to have some fat in there which is why it's ideal to fry them off at the beginning to get the flavors out into the oils which will then spread out throughout the rest of the dish when you add your other ingredients if you put it into a liquid stew or a broth it just won't spread out as much and the flavor won't be won't be anything like as rich
0: most people probably buy their spices at the grocery store And so the question is, is there much of a difference between different brands of spices, whether you buy them whole or ground up? Uh, Is it worth going to the trouble of getting fresh spices or buying them through the mail? Or if you're cooking and you need a teaspoon of cumin, I mean, does it really matter where it comes from? Is is it pretty much going to be
2: the same? So the first part of that is that, yes, there is a difference between pre-ground and whole spices. Generally, it's always a good idea to go for the whole spice whenever you can. Sometimes that can be very difficult to get hold of, uh, but the whole spice is generally better Uh, for the same reason why it's much better to have, I don't know, fresh fish rather than fish that's been dried. It's got so much more flavor in it as soon as you grind up that spice the flavors which are contained within the oils evaporate really quickly when you're cooking with them you smell the aromas it fills the kitchen but soon after you've ground a spice some of those vapors all the flavors are being lost into the air so the process of grinding and that is also involves heating the spice as well when it's done in manufacturing plants loses a lot of the subtle flavors you tend to retain the core flavors but you lose all the subtleties all the nuances all the little kind of floral or the citrusy notes that you might get in it and also sometimes as well as tasting blander the spice can take on a slightly different form so ground ginger is hotter than fresh ginger, and that's because the substance in ginger that gives its heat changes form into a more um, potent, more aggressive, um, fiery form when it's been when it's been dried and when it's been ground. So, generally speaking, buy the whole spices, uh, roast them, and you don't have to make it a big chore. You can get a batch and just roast them up and um put them in a pot and just keep them keep them from it, do a bit. do a batch and you can do it once every couple of months or so uh, and then before you use it uh, grind it up and then all the those little droplets of oil that have been kept stored up inside there, they will burst out and they'll be fresh and full of flavor and my tip for grinding up is you can use a pestle and mortar but it's a lot of hard effort uh, so get a coffee grinder and what
0: about the the difference from one brand to another? I mean, uh, is there really going to be much of a difference?
2: There can be. Generally, uh, if you go for the cheaper brands, they're going to um, possibly be of poorer quality. This is especially true if you're going for um, more expensive spices like saffron. Extremely expensive. It's very expensive because you're going to get three tiny little strands from each crocus flower that it comes from it actually comes from the flower itself uh, the, these strands are plucked out by hand and you need something you need you need thousands and thousands of plants to, to get a gram or an ounce of saffron and so that's often contaminated it's often been cut with something else all sorts of things they put twigs in there all sorts of and also the flavorless parts of the plant that they'll they'll put in there it's highly adulterated saffron, so it's always worth uh, paying more for your saffron and getting it from a reputable supplier.
0: Yeah, but saffron's one thing. I, I, but if you're going to buy cinnamon and one jar is $7 and the other jar is 3 and you're just going to put it on
2: your toast, uh, d- does it really matter? I would say pr- when you're looking at that sort of thing, I would say probably not. But the thing to bear in mind with cinnamon is that there's two types of cinnamon. There is true cinnamon, and the, um, there is another type of cinnamon called cassia or cassia, c a s s i a. And the the cassia uh, is often sold as cinnamon, but it's not really cinnamon itself. It, you can, if you look on the back of the packet, if it says Ceylon cinnamon then that tells you that it's real cinnamon. Um, and the, the kind of the imitation is cheaper and it doesn't have um, as much of the the flavour to it. It's, it's, it's a harsher flavour, a more bitter flavour. So cinnamon is worth looking out for and look on the back and check whether it actually says true cinnamon or not, uh, true cinnamon or not on the back of the packet. Generally speaking, I think you could probably, for say something like some ground cumin, Uh, paying twice as much, you're probably not going to notice the difference. My guess would be that people
0: use and stick to the same spices they've always used or maybe the spices their mother used and they don't really experiment too much with spices. So what are some of the spices that you've uncovered or researched that maybe people haven't even heard of before that would really be exciting to try?
2: In the, uh, the six months of writing this book, of being utterly uh, surrounded in spices, I've explored some, um, some weird and wonderful spices. Uh, there are so many out there, uh, some fantastic ones that you will have to probably search online to find them. But my all-time favorite spice that I found is one called wattle seed, and it's from Australia. Uh, it was. It's been used for for hundreds, if not thousands, of years by Aboriginals uh, in part of their cooking and and in their medicines. And wattle seed, it's like a roasted, nutty, smoky flavored uh, spice, unlike anything else I've found. And you can use it on in meat rubs uh, or anything that you want to add a kind of a, a roasted, smoky aroma to it. Wattle seed. That's one that I would really uh, recommend anybody. Uh, looking out for or seeking out You yeah, go online and find wattle seed the one is lemon myrtle now this is more lemony than lemon the substance that gives lemon its flavour is called citral and the concentration of this lemon flavour compound is many times more concentrated than is in lemon itself and so that's well worth hunting out because um, you can get lemony flavor without needing a lemon and also uh, if you use lemon in your cooking you know it's very acidic and that can often uh, change a dish it can make cream curdle for example so if you get this you can add make something really lemony uh, really simply just by getting some um, some sprinkles of this lemon myrtle.
0: What else about spices do you think people don't
2: really understand, or would be fascinated to learn? Is when you look into the individual stories of in, of spices, because the the spices themselves, um, you could you could pick an individual spice, and there's a there's incredible history and story behind it. Because many spices um, have been used as as currency in the past. Uh, one time in history, I think it was in the 16th century, uh, nutmeg was said to be uh, more valuable than gold um, because spices can be uh, can be stored for such a long period of time. And they've been long esteemed of being something that's of medicinal value and highly sought after that. Uh, it has a value in its own right. I mean, now we don't even think about it. We just buy it in a pot and cook with it. Um but, The the Dutch and the British fought wars for decades over the rights to uh, the Spice Islands. So there are some fascinating stories behind spices Uh, and and, and vanilla, for example. Vanilla is a fantastic spice. And it was um, comes from Central America, comes from an orchid. And uh, when the the Spaniards first went across to Central America in 1519, I think it was, an Aztec king served the Spaniards uh, some beverages with vanilla in. They took some vanilla back to Europe and tried to grow it. They could grow the plant, but for some reason they couldn't get it to develop the vanilla pods. And it took them hundreds of years to work this out uh, until eventually um, a botanist figured out that um, there wasn't anything to um to pollinate them in europe the bee that pollinates them only exists in central america and so um a botanist developed i think it was a belgian botanist developed a technique to self pollinate so with your hand you can get the uh, the orchid plants to uh, pollinate themselves and so they would uh, produce their fruit and you would get the uh, you would get the vanilla pod so that yes yeah, it there is some real fascinating stuff mike about spices
0: And if you'd like to learn more, and if this topic interests you, you, you'll be an expert by the time you get through Stuart's book. It's a gorgeous book. It's called Spice. It is by Dr. Stuart Faramond, and there's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Stuart.
2: Cheers, mate. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Since we're talking about food and spices and all, one of the things that's always fascinated me about Italian food is how most Italian food tastes better the second day than it does the first day with one big exception, that being pizza. That's because you have to reheat pizza, most of us do it in the microwave, and the microwave is no friend to pizza. It turns the crust soggy, and if you don't watch it carefully, it will just vaporize all the toppings on the pizza. Of course, you can always heat pizza up in the oven, but that takes forever. Another very effective way is to heat the pizza in a frying pan. It's a little faster than the oven, if you put it in a frying pan on low heat, And cover the pan, which makes a little mini oven in there, and it heats up pretty nicely and keeps the crust crunchy. But if you do need to use the microwave to reheat your pizza, here's a little trick. You put a glass of water in the microwave next to the pizza. The water absorbs some of the excess radiation and helps keep the crust crunchy. And that is something you should know. And that's it for today. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening to Something You Should Know.